Um, so I'll talk, indeed waffle on, I suspect, for about 15 minutes or so, and hopefully we'll get a bit of time at the end for questions if anyone has any. Um, I'm aware today, too, that some of you are kind of Edward Thomas experts, and some of you might be coming to him um, afresh. Um, so I apologise if I'm telling you things you've already um, heard before, but that's just the, the game we'll have to play, I think. So I've chosen the title uh, Edwardian War Poets uh, for various reasons, partly because these three words fit together very unhappily. Uh, we think of the Edwardian era as being a time of peace and of leisure, so that it doesn't fit very easily with the word war, although, of course, war is in the word Edwardian. And indeed, as we saw yesterday too, uh, war poet as a concept is a slightly uneasy one because there's always really that implied and unspoken word anti-hyphenated to the word war uh, in order for those words to go well together. Um, and Thomas throws up quite a few interesting issues for us about thinking about war poetry. For instance, even indeed, is he a war poet at all? Is there too much of that Edwardian concept of peace and leisure and the countryside and the home front for us to be able to call him a war poet? And we can come towards thinking about that at the end. How many of his poems would really ever count as war poems? Uh, but also, um, there is, um, with Thomas, the question of his relationship with modernity. So to try and place him in an Edwardian period and think of him as an Edwardian writer might go against some fairly contemporary ideas about Edward Thomas being a kind of poet for our own time, if you like. And I guess that book that uh, Stuart's already mentioned, Branch Lines, was an attempt to address Thomas's influence on contemporary poetry, poetry being written in the 21st century. And you'll see again and again these days him being talked about as a writer uh, of great kind of modern uh, impact. So we need to think about him, I think, as a writer who certainly does have relevance for today, um, but also is a writer from his own time and I think uh, has been neglected as a writer actually from the Edwardian period and actually someone who relates to an historical context, if you like. I've also just used that title because um, Kenneth Millard um, in 1991 produced a very important book called Edwardian Poetry in which Edward Thomas is one of the chapters you, um, here which I recommend to people, Kenneth Millard, uh, Edwardian Poetry. But he's more interested in the idea of Edwardian in the sense of thinking about Edward Thomas and indeed other poets, some of whom I'll look at today, um, as a kind of bridge between Victorian poetry and modernism. He's trying to think about, is there that kind of gap, really, that early 20th century gap that needs to be filled with a concept which he calls Edwardian poetry? So Thomas can be seen as a bridge. Other people might say that Thomas is more of a road not taken, um, and that what would have happened to poetry if Thomas had survived, or indeed some of his contemporaries from the war had survived, would poetry have taken a different road and not gone into modernism in quite such an enthusiastic way as it did? So that's another way of thinking about Edwardian, which is not really what I'm looking at today. I'm more interested in thinking about Edward Thomas as someone who lived in the Edwardian period and is actually picking up on some of the, the, um, the spirit of the age and how that then feeds into what he then writes during the First World War. Okay. So, um, again, just as a little kind of summary of Thomas's life, perhaps, for those of you who don't know much about him. But also, I want to make the point here of, of Thomas's age, which is very important for thinking about him in relationship uh, to the First World War. Um, Thomas, born 1878, as you'll see there, uh, it's important to think of him as someone who was uh, uh, much older, really, than your, your kind of classic idea of the war poet from the First World War. And indeed, in some cases, he would have been um, twice the age of the men he was leading when he was an officer. Um, and indeed, Thomas had a son, as you'll see there. Uh, his first child, uh, on the next slide, actually, um, Mervyn was born in 1900, so he had a son who was actually in uniform by the end of the First World War. And that does give us a very different sense of a war poet here, a man who had actually been working 
um, for about 15 years before he actually joins the army. He's not going straight from school or straight from university. Um, and indeed, Thomas had been at Oxford University in the 19th century. Um, you know, he, he left Oxford before Queen Victoria died. So I think that does give us a very different idea of when we're thinking about this notion of the innocent poet going off to the, the front and kind of seeing it, um, these things that he couldn't have imagined and that transforms him as a writer and so on. Thomas is someone who was essentially middle-aged when he's in the trenches and essentially um, uh, uh, a kind of father figure, really, to his men in a, in a literal sense, almost. Um, it's also important to think about his dates, though, and a little sense of his uh, kind of biographical outline to think about Thomas as a prose writer. Um, I've also been um, editing Edward Thomas's prose for Oxford University <coughs> Press, and with Lucy Newlin, I, we're general editors of Thomas's prose series for OUP. And part of our game is to kind of reinvigorate uh, Thomas's prose, get, give more attention back to it, because Thomas is always thought about now perhaps as a poet, and we need to think that the majority of his career was spent as a prose writer. And to, we need to be reminded too that that poetry would not have existed if it wasn't for the prose and wasn't for the prose career. And you can see direct links between the poetry and the prose. You can pick out little moments where he clearly remembers something from his prose and re reuses it, recycles it in his poetry. But also I think there are other connections between the prose and poetry which are possibly more fundamental. One of those you might want to think about actually is the concept of work. As I said, Thomas is someone who'd actually worked for many years before the First World War. And you'll see how important work becomes in his poetry. And not necessarily in all cases writing, you know, um, it might be farm labouring or something like that but work is there as the theme and I think that's coming out of someone who was so oppressed by work before the war uh, work kind of, he felt kind of dominated his life far too much because of the need to make a living and what he was doing was trying to exist as a writer um, which is always a precarious um, uh, profession of course um, and was uh, doing massive amount of book reviewing and, and what he considered hack work and so forth so that work becomes something of an obsession the need for leisure, the desire for leisure um, equally as its kind of counterpoint. Uh, and both of them come out in the poetry he's writing during the First World War. Indeed, you might want to look very briefly at a poem called As the Teams Have Brass, which some of you will know, which is on your handout of poems on page 123. It's a, one page before the end of the handout, if you like. So, I mean, if we just looked at the start of As the Teams Head Brass, it's worth thinking about the role of, of work here. Um, this is one of the poems that would normally get into anthologies of First World War poetry um, and would normally be considered a war poem, and yet it begins very much with a, um, a kind of uh, a farming context, if you like. As the Teams Head Brass flashed out on the turn, the lovers disappeared into the wood. I sat among the boughs of the fallen elm that strewed an angle of the fallow and watched the plough narrowing a yellow square of charlock. Every time the horses turned, instead of treading me down, the ploughman leaned upon the handles to say or ask a word about the weather, next about the war, scraping the share he faced towards the wood, and screwed along the furrow till the brass flashed out once more. Now, um, I guess um, if we're thinking about the rows of the field, it would be him, like him sitting on a log, um, at this kind of end of the room, and the plough kind of going up and down the rows of the... Uh, of the field there so that he could speak to the, the ploughman at that point when he comes back to his end of the rows um, and so he talks about a kind of conversation with big gaps in it if you like 
Some people have already made the point, um, particularly Edna Longley, for instance, so that begins to evoke in our ideas actually the lines of writing. And that although this is an image of ploughing a field, there's actually the concept here of Thomas the writer kind of making some kind of connection with the image of uh, these straight lines and going back along back and forth. Um, Edna Longley, in her wonderful edition of Thomas's poems, connects that to Thomas the poet. I think it's probably more likely to be Thomas the prose writer, because, of course, one of your definitions of poetry is that lines don't go all the way to the end. Um, and if your horse is trying to write poetry, it would make a horrible mess of your field. So you want prose, which goes all the way to the end, I think. And I think, so there's almost, whether he's even conscious of it, there is a sense in that image of um, Thomas the prose writer. And it's actually only um, a short while after this poem that he then writes a poem which I haven't actually given you, but which some of you will know, uh, The Long Small Room, which is a poem in which he remembers his writing career. Um, and he says towards the end of the poem, one thing remains the same, this my right hand, crawling crab-like over the clean white page, resting a while each morning on the pillow, then once again, then once more starting to crawl on towards age. And I think that's very much an image of writing which is uh, recreated, uh, recreating, I guess, the image of um, ploughing in this poem. And it reminds us too, again, as, as I suggested, um, of the role of work. Um, work's also important with Thomas too, um, as is often pointed out, because to some extent the war relieved him of work. Um, it's the start made it harder to make a living as a book reviewer because a lot of the space in the newspapers was taken up with war news rather than book reviews. Um, it made it harder to get work writing commissioned books and so forth. Um, and then also by joining up, um, he got a regular income and a regular kind of way of life, if you like, um, so that some people would see that his poetry, which emerges only during the war, he begins as a poet in uh, the end of 1914, um, as being something that's actually kind of encouraged by war conditions, if you like, and so that work plays its role in that sense. You see on the slide there that Thomas uh, joins the Artist Rifles in 1915, and of course the Artist Rifles is also... Um, uh, what Wilfred Owen joins a few months later. Um, it might also be worth just taking a look at this photograph just for a very moment. This is by a famous, it's a wonderful photograph, I think. It's by a famous photographer called Frederick Evans, who's best known for architectural photography. You might know his famous picture of the Sea of Steps at Wells uh, Cathedral, for instance. But I think he makes Thomas into a bit of Gothic architecture himself here, this kind of angular and pointy little face of Thomas's. Uh, but I also love the fact that the year is the focus of the picture here. The ear is right in the centre. It does remind us of the need for Thomas to think so much about listening. And his most famous poem, um, Adelstock, which we'll come to look at briefly, um, is about listening and um, uh, uh, listening to the countryside, if you like. And what a, what a fine ear it is, I think. <laughs> Seems to be one of those people who has no earlobes. Uh, good. So... Um, Let's probably kind of move on, because I can see I can waffle on forever now. I've already mentioned the fact that he's a family man. You just might want to remind yourself of that, because that makes a difference too to him as a war poet. We're thinking about all these war poets. Not many of them have children. In fact, very few of the uh, war poets you'll look at actually are fathers. Um, and... Uh, that was Margie's. Uh, yeah, no, sorry. No, I meant... What I meant was at the time of the war. I mean, obviously, a lot of them became fathers afterwards. Sorry. Uh, I'm not, not suggesting a, a, a lifelong celibacy for your war poets. But um, uh, uh, to actually be a father before the war, and in Thomas's case, actually have fairly grown-up children in the war, is quite unusual. And um, it does give him a slightly different perspective, I think, particularly when home becomes such a theme in his war poetry, and indeed England... Um, generally. Um, and in the, he does have, of course, some poems that he writes during the war which are specifically about his children. Um, um, 
those might not be straightforwardly war poems in the sense that they're not talking about guns and so forth, but we begin to get a sense with Thomas that these are all poems that wouldn't really necessarily be quite the same or quite phrased in quite the same way if it wasn't for the war as a context. And certainly in the case of his son Mervyn, there's a few poems there, uh, like the poem Parting and so forth, which are very much kind of uh, picking up on Thomas's own anxieties about his son. Um, what happens to his son early on in the war is that he goes across the Atlantic with uh, Thomas's friend Robert Frost um, in an attempt partly to kind of get Mervyn out of the way uh, during the war, if you like. Um, and uh, some of Thomas's anxieties can be seen there in that he's worried about um, uh, the fact that there might be U-boats and so forth attacking ships going across the Atlantic, which of course there were, and you get the famous Lusitania uh, disaster, for instance, as well, around the time when he's writing. Um, so this is the caring father, the worried father, if you like. Some people might also make the point with Thomas, though, that maybe the children, and indeed his wife, Helen, uh, don't feature in the poems quite as much as you might expect. For a man who was a family man, um, he also actually spends a lot of his time in his poetry depicting himself as a lonely figure, or a solitary figure, um, and in, or indeed as a friend of uh, Robert Frost, for instance. Maybe the great love poem in Thomas's work, and indeed itself a war poem, is The Sun Used to Shine, uh, which is actually about Thomas walking with Robert Frost, not with his wife Helen, although um, it takes place at a time when Thomas was there with his family and with his wife, but they're not in the picture. It's Thomas and Frost, this bromance, uh, if you like, between the two great poets. Um, I've also just put up a link there which you might want to uh, pursue yourself, um, really, to mention that the First of all uh, Poetry Digital Archive has some wonderful letters from the children to Edward Thomas which have been digitised. And it's very lovely to see, say, Bronwyn writing to um, uh, her father during the war and asking whether he's enjoying the army and so forth. And get a child's perspective of war experience, I think. And also, some of you might know Helen's memoirs, which have been brought together in the book Under Storm's Wing, where, again, you get a wise perspective on um, war experience, talking about clothes, um, how his smell changes, actually, from moving from being a man who wore tweed all the time to a man who was wearing khaki, uh, and so on. And um, uh, she very much kind of sees him in a domestic sphere, even though he's a soldier um, at times, uh, towards the end of, of her memoirs. Um, so... The family also gives us a slightly different idea of war experience. That might kind of also lead us into then um, one of the more Edwardian themes that I wanted uh, to address. Now, it's often talked about in terms of the Edwardian period that this is the time of the cult of the child, you know, the great golden age of children's literature, uh, indeed. You know, um, indeed, I've got J.M. Barry and Peter Pan up here, which... Um, has quite a protracted uh, emergence, depending on whether you're thinking about the play or the, the book form. But if we talk about Peter Pan emerging in 1904, um, it makes it one of the essential Edwardian um, texts. But you've also indeed got the Boy Scouts emerging um, in the Edwardian period in 1908. Even the king, even Edward VII, for some people, captured this cult of the child in that he was often depicted as being like a child or a big baby, someone who had been infantilised by his mother, um, and was only interested in pleasure and was also kind of incredibly uh, self-centred and so forth and a lot of cartoons and so forth saw him as the great child kind of, who kind of determined the zeitgeist of the nation I think so you might want to think about the role of children in Thomas's work partly as a father but also possibly as the spirit of the age because Thomas himself talked about how if you're going to be a poet you've got to um, uh, really see language in the way a child does and be prepared to play with language in the way a child does. 
And that, to some extent, means actually ignoring the meaning of words and just playing with them for their sound in the way that a child might make up a little song that's complete nonsense, but um, which they just like for the sound of the words. Uh, and Thomas is really interested in pushing words to the edge of their kind of dictionary meaning, if you like. And he talks about, um, um, you know, only scientists and kind of dictionary makers will kill a word by trying to give it a specific definition. Um, and it's in that need to be a child in him. We should also remind ourselves that uh, Thomas is using children's literature, nursery rhymes, uh, and so on in his poetry during the war, and that, that makes an interesting clash um, for this war poetry between um, uh, the incredibly uh, serious um, uh, war that's going on and the rather childlike voice that he can use at times uh, to talk about it in different ways and say the poem Lob, um, uh, but also um, in the way that, in say the poem Words, he um, uh, talks about playing with language there and he takes a kind of childish, kind of almost nursery rhyme approach to what language should be. Indeed, in the poem Words that he writes, there's clear in that poem uh, um, an echo of the writer Thomas Traherne, who was a religious writer. You don't particularly necessarily have to know about him, but some of you might do, um, which, who Thomas was really interested in because Traherne himself was one of these people who saw somehow the child's eye vision as being something close to a vision of heaven and that the way a child sees the countryside, for instance, is a kind of almost close to a vision of the afterlife and of paradise and that there's almost something kind of holy in the child. Um, and um, Traherne has quite a big impact on Thomas, even though Thomas is not a Christian. He certainly um, shares that sense of uh, the value um, of a child who can see magic in the everyday, if you like. Um, a child who can be entertained by the littlest and most irrelevant thing. And again and again you see that in Thomas's work, that he's actually writing about fairly everyday, boring, trivial things, and yet he sees the magic in them, whether it be a, a wasp trap which he sees as being somehow lovelier than stars, you know, and has transformed at night time, or whether it be Adelstrop, a kind of fairly irrelevant little station, um, which suddenly becomes um, a, a kind of epiphanic, magical moment for him and that's something childlike about some people would also um, suggest that Thomas um, picks up the Edwardian period in terms of his nostalgia there's been quite a lot of set, said about Thomas and nostalgia a writer um, who's constantly looking back to the past but also in the more literal sense of nostalgia actually looking for a home and that home becomes a theme in his work and that there's a sense of a lost home for him and you'll see indeed with his poetry that three of the poems have home as a title. Um, and this becomes something of an uh, Edwardian theme indeed in the early 20th century. So I've got this slide here um, uh, just to give you a sense of the Edwardian spirit of getting back to the land, which is um, uh, one of the kind of dominant themes uh, for literature in the Edwardian period, but also for politics indeed too. Uh, it's an interesting photo on the right here because you've got Rupert Brooke, who we looked at yesterday, um, uh, looking very dashing on the right-hand side. Uh, but also next to him there, Virginia Woolf, um, um, dressed in the fashion of the time, indeed, that kind of gypsy headscarf look, which ties into the other kind of theme of the early 20th century, of bohemianism, because, of course, the word bohemianism comes from this idea of um, uh, the French kind of use of the word of, uh, bohemia for um, uh, the gypsies and the kind of spirit of being like a gypsy, if you like, um, but also fits into this idea of the cult of the peasants and so on. Some of you might know... Augustus John and the story of him and his painting and this, this artist who goes out into the countryside and plays at being a gypsy and indeed falls in love um, um, uh, um, and uh, creates a family as if he was a gypsy himself and 
um, uh, idolises those people who are in effect rejecting the world of their parents. And you can see Edward Thomas in this context too. Thomas grows up in London with a hard-working and in effect, I think, kind of honourable and likeable uh, father, but one that Thomas really didn't have um, much ability to connect with. And Thomas um, doesn't want to become a civil servant like his dad. He wants to kind of escape to the country, have that world of love in a cottage, if you like, get back to the land. And that spirit of the Edwardian age is one of rejecting the Victorians and rejecting the parents, if you like. Again, if you want to see it in those terms, it's something that's inspired by the monarch himself. And Edward VII, with his pursuit of pleasure and leisure and indeed shooting parties in the countryside and so on, was rejecting the Victorian, and indeed his mother, Victoria's obsession with work and duty and diligence and so forth, or indeed Prince Albert's influence even more so than Victoria's, I I think. And all of this, I think, is going on in Edward Thomas's um, poetry then, and his war poetry, um, if you want to call it uh, that. Some people like to look at Edward Thomas too these days as um, a great poet for our times because he has a kind of ecological vision, he's a kind of eco-poet, to use those terms if you like. That spirit of Thomas being a nature poet during the war um, seems somehow to speak to our own fears about the destruction of nature, uh, the destruction of the countryside in the 21st century. Just as a word of warning to that, though, I would say that in many ways Thomas's attitude to the countryside is distinctly Edwardian rather than 21st century. Uh, it's indeed an age in which you can go picking flowers and not get told off for it, and indeed see that as a good thing. Um, I think it still very much is an age of kind of tweed and butterfly nets and bird nesting and so forth, rather than um, a kind of um, friends of the earth kind of approach. Um, uh, but that doesn't make ecological readings of his work um, uh, invalid. So on the left here, I've just put up some of the kind of isms again that you'll come across. One of the ones you might want to point out there is Fabianism, just because it's interesting to think about how the countryside and politics come together during this period. And Fabianism is something that Rupert Brooke is strongly connected with, and indeed Virginia Woolf to some extent. Um, There's this sense that a vision of the future, and indeed a socialist vision for the future, um, will be tied to a vision of getting back to the land. And if indeed you want to create equality and egalitarianism, it's easier to do that on a level of thinking about people living a simple life in the countryside rather than everyone living in a massive house, in a, in a kind of a massive manor house or something like that. So um, um, there is a sense indeed of, in Edwardian period, of going off at the weekend on camping trips, doing a bit of skinny dipping, um, uh, picking some flowers and talking about politics and, and the great uh, future that can come, um, uh, a great socialist vision indeed um, along the way. And that's partly why Virginia Woolf there uh, is out there. should point out that Rupert Brooke did know Edward Thomas uh, and they were fairly friendly. Um, Virginia Woolf, after Thomas dies, writes um, a very um, positive and, and fairly moving, actually, review of Thomas's uh, book, A Literary Pilgrim in England. Uh, you've also got Maitland Radford there, um, uh, the doctor um, who knew Edward Thomas as well. So he's intimately connected to this, this group of people. So if we looked at Thomas's poem in memoriam, again, one, one that does seem to be uh, a war poem, a very short little poem, you'll see how we begin to get a sense of Thomas using uh, nature in order to engage with the war. What's interesting about this poem, um, indeed, which I can just quickly read, the flowers left thick at nightfall in the wood, this Easter tide calling to mind the men, now far from home, who with their sweethearts should have gathered them and will be never again, is that in a way he's inverting the traditional idea of 
using nature to talk about war, uh, the war. Uh, you might know, say, uh, The Flowers of the Forest, the poem and indeed song that's been adapted several times uh, from a uh, Scottish tradition about the Battle of Flodden. Um, there, it's a more familiar idea because there it's using the idea of the flowers um, uh, being weeded away, being, being picked, if you like, as an example, an image of soldiers being killed and men dying. Thomas actually turns that on its head here and we have the image of flowers not being picked as a result of the war. Um, uh, is that a kind of family man or husband's perspective you might want to think too given that uh, we know indeed from his poetry that uh, one of the things uh, he delighted in doing with his children is picking flowers and his, his uh, elder daughter Bronwyn uh, used to be the, uh, uh, the one to go and pick the first flowers for him and he writes about that in one of his household poems about his children. So there might even be in this poem here um, some memory of uh, childhood and thinking indeed about his own daughter Bronwyn getting almost to the age of being a sweetheart herself and thinking about the future for his own children here in this poem. Something of a paradox here too as well of course because um, what's going on in the Western Front is that we get the classic image of the countryside being destroyed by the modern war machine. Uh, you know, mud, battered trees, um, a lack of countryside, a lack of landscape. Um, uh, and here on the home front, it's almost as if the countryside is, um, uh, is victorious uh, and remaining unviolated as a result of the war. But what we do also get very movingly in Thomas's um, war writing, beyond the poetry, is him at the Western Front in his war diary and in the letters he writes uh, in early 1917, um, trying to see the Western Front as if he was back in the English countryside. He's looking at aeroplanes and saying, oh, they look a bit like um, birds of prey in Hampshire. He's tr listening out, again, listening out um, for birdsong, even at um, uh, the Western Front and so forth. So um, we do also get this other side of Thomas, which is his desire um, to um, make the countryside uh, live and survive in the Western Front and continue to believe um, that it is immortal, if you will. You might just want to touch um, briefly um, on uh, this poem I've already um, touched on, then. The Sun Used to Touch Shine, in terms of thinking about um, uh, the use of nature or the countryside in order to address the First World War. Now, um, in some cases, like in memoriam, he's kind of quite specifically uh, um, addressing the war. Some people would like to start looking at nature in Thomas's poems and seeing it all as more a kind of metaphorical way of addressing uh, the conflict, a very kind of coded kind of way of doing it. And The Sun Used to Shine is a poem in which later on um, the war becomes quite explicitly addressed in the poem. And indeed, um, on line nine here, you'll see just in this little quote here, the war... Uh, is referred to as something being rather remote here. Um, but then we get this image of only to, till boasts the disinclined for aught but the yellow flavorous coat of an apple wasps had undermined. Um, and this is uh, a cider apple because Thomas is here writing kind of about the, the Dimmock country um, between Gloucestershire and Herefordshire really kind of on the border area around there. Um, where the point he's making actually is that he couldn't have eaten the apple unless it had actually been undermined by a wasp because that cider apples are too tough to just pick up and, and kind of munch into. Um, so there is actually an interesting use of an image that might be about war here, the kind of 
undermining is indeed a concept you get on the Western Front, you're kind of undermining trenches and uh, no man's land and so on. The wasp being something, if you like, of a kind of an aggressor here, uh, an attacker. Um, but also the implied message, therefore, is that without war you don't appreciate things perhaps as much as you would do um, uh, uh, otherwise. Um, you wouldn't be able to taste the apple if you hadn't had the, the violent act, if you like. And again again, we get a sense with Thomas indeed, um, and indeed I think possibly with quite a lot of war poetry, that the value of things is intensified, is jacked up by the fact that there's a war going on. So those trivial things I already mentioned, everyday life, suddenly becomes really valuable um, because it's under threat. And a lot of Thomas's power, I think, comes from that sense of the fragility and the threat that uh, hovers around everyday life and indeed um, around something like uh, uh, the English countryside. Um, Dennis Potter, when he was interviewed, uh, the TV playwright, um, not long before he died, indeed, um, was drinking morphine from a hip flask as he was being interviewed by Melvin Bragg. I don't know if you've ever come across that. He talked about, um, uh, now that he knows he's about to die uh, from cancer, I think, um, that the blossom outside the window is the blossomiest blossom ever. You couldn't imagine how powerful that blossom is when you know it's the last time you're ever going to see blossom, if that's your last spring. And that must be an experience, I think, unfortunately, that a lot of people have when they know they're going to die or whatever. Or if you've seen uh, a loved one die, and you might feel that yourself on their behalf. Uh, and I think that's there right at the heart of Thomas's work, a sense that, that might be the last time he gets to, uh, say, eat a cider apple. And I think that's very much the theme of The Sun Used to Shine, indeed, that um, he feels that this is the end of a stage of his life. This might be the end of his experience of the countryside. Um, and that everything is under threat if only because he might die and not get to enjoy it himself. So I've also put up on the slide here a poem, Tears, which some of you might come, up, um, come across. I won't read through it all now because I'm aware of uh, the uh, time ticking by. Um, but I want to just point out Tears in terms of what I've been talking about because this is a kind of Rosetta Stone for looking at Thomas's poetry because in Tears we begin... Uh, with this first half of the poem here, with a description of uh, Blooming Meadow, which was in Kent and a kind of part of uh, the English countryside that Thomas knew uh, and loved uh, intimately, um, which seems like it might have some significance for the war, but is not directly addressing the war. We've got a hunting scene. We've got foxhounds going through. You see... Um, uh, line three, when 20 hounds stream by me, and then line four... Um, described as being like uh, uh, um, being in a rage of gladness and the next line described as um, like a great dragon uh, there. But the second half of the poem uh, moves on to make a much more explicit connection with soldiering and the military. So that in this poem we do have Thomas using nature imagery and then soldiering and we can then begin to think about the rest of his poems as actually using nature and the countryside metaphorically uh, to address the war. So that all those poems of his that address violence in some way nature read in tooth and claw maybe but also um, address um, uh, kind of threat, destruction um, and uh, uh, the possibility of the end of the countryside all those poems actually seem to be war poems in a kind of coded metaphorical way although it's not really my theme today I just also want to just address uh, briefly looking at this slide uh, what a wonderful use of rhyme um, Edward Thomas is uh, and I love uh, the way that somehow 
uh, drums there uh, is picked up by the word dreamed at the end. And there's a kind of courage in a lot of Edward Thomas's use of rhyme, which you'll also see in the poem Adelstrop, which wonderfully ends with one of the most famous rhymes that isn't really a rhyme um, in English poetry of Mistier and Gloucestershire. Um, indeed, that might be something to connect him into Wolfie Owen, actually, that kind of uh, desire um, to actually look like you don't know how to do rhymes very well uh, by only doing them half right. Um, uh, and both, both poets indeed were confronted with critics who thought, well, they're not very good at writing, are they? They can't even get a rhyme correct, isn't it? Um, and it takes some time for us to realise that they're doing it on purpose. Also, this poem's interesting, too, for pointing out that Thomas does find the war in some ways beautiful. He's talking, actually, about a pre-war scene here of soldiers um, at the Tower of London, uh, Grenadier Guards, but... Um, He's very keen to stress the kind of the beauty of soldiering, indeed. And we know that he actually found war service in some ways pleasurable, and he enjoyed his uniform and, and enjoyed, uh, to some extent, the paraphernalia of the military, as did quite a lot of our war poets, I think. And it's worth reminding uh, ourselves that it's not always just about horror and misery uh, serving in the army. I just wanted to kind of touch then on... Um, some of this Edwardian context just a little bit more before uh, we move on. I've got another 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Um, Thomas was friends to some extent anyway with Hilaire Belloc, the chap on the, uh, the left here. We might also want to think about uh, the wind in the willows in the context of this. If you want the classic Edwardian text, I think it's the wind in the willows, which captures so much of the Edwardian spirit and the feeling of the decade. Um, um, but just to make one connection with this context between Edward Thomas um, and the Edwardians, you might want to think about journeying and the road um, in Edward Thomas's work and indeed in a lot of Edwardian writing. Wind in the Willows is all structured around journeys, discoveries, even begins with Mole popping out of, out of his little home, uh, Mole End, isn't it, and uh, um, celebrating the spring and going off on a little journey. But... Um, it's a, Wind in the Willows uses all forms of transport as well. We get the motor car, a kind of fairly new arrival in the countryside, uh, being fairly disastrous for Toad. Um, and you get the canal boat and the gypsy caravan and all of that. And Belloc as well, when he writes about the countryside and does so wonderfully in the Edwardian period, it's based around journeys. In some cases it might be pilgrimages because Belloc is a very uh, um, enthusiastically Roman Catholic. Um, but um, it's also about walking. Um, which is at the heart of Edward Thomas's work as a prose writer, but also as a poet, I think. And that context of journey captures some of that Edwardian spirit, too, of restlessness and a feeling of the need to find a home and never quite feeling that you know where your home is. And that sense of uh, quest, um, which is often at the heart of Edwardian uh, literature, I think. Famously, Thomas, with his poem Rhodes, then, um, uh, moves towards the end of that poem as saying now all roads lead to France so that his journey will ultimately take him uh, to the Western Front but in a broader sense his journeys in his work um, are Edwardian in terms of their quest for meaning and their quest for significance and their quest um, for permanence and for some <coughs> sense of solidity in his life that again might take us back to thinking about him as a family man, he was a family man who actually spent a lot of time away from home journeying and a man who actually had such a wonderful home indeed and a his wife Helen was such a wonderful homemaker, never actually seemed very keen to stay at home for very long um, and felt very restless, I think, um, as a father figure. So I just put up some of the uh, kind of aspects of what we might talk about in terms of the, the condition of England here. An Edwardian uh, theme itself, um, and indeed um, Stuart mentioned yesterday, 
uh, Masterman's uh, the book, The Condition of England, which comes out at the end, end of the Edwardian decade, in which many of these themes are addressed. And um, we might actually begin to see how these themes of Edwardian literature and Edwardian politics actually can be found in Edward Thomas's war writing uh, and uh, what he's producing as a poet. I've also put on the other side Ian Forster, someone who didn't like Edward Thomas, but is an ex- almost an exact contemporary and one of the great Edwardian writers. And you might want to, as a kind of future project, if you like, begin to think a lot more about the relationship between Edward Thomas and E.M. Forster. Um, Forster seems never to have met Edward Thomas, but he did read his work. And, and it seems that Leonard Bast in Howard's End is partly based on Edward Thomas, not realistically, because they're not at all alike, but it's Forster's idea of what Edward Thomas was. And what happens in Howard's End, for instance, some of you might know that novel, is that Leonard Bast is this kind of London office worker who wants to escape to the countryside and walks out of London during the night, um, uh, 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 west indeed, out of London, um, to discover the glories of the countryside, which he ends up finding quite grey and boring. Um, and that seems to be picking up on the start of the Heart of England, um, Edward Thomas's prose work, in which Thomas walks out of the city at night and finds the countryside as this magical uh, kind of uh, discovery and compares it indeed to uh, kind of uh, discovering some kind of Egyptian tomb and the treasures of ancient Egypt um, and so forth. And I think Forster, um, in some of his writing about the countryside, is actually remembering Edward Thomas. But all of these things, I think, that I've put on the left-hand side can actually be found having some kind of impact on Edward Thomas's prose and on his poetry and uh, as the kind of concerns of the age. And one we might want to um, just pick up on might be... Um, uh, Speed, perhaps, which I'd put down there, and transport. Uh, um, you might want to think about how so much of Thomas's work actually uh, shapes itself around um, uh, talking about speed and also the opposite of slowing down. And that has actually, um, uh, uh, you could use a, a kind of uh, uh, speedometer, I think, with um, Edward Thomas to think about how his poetry actually speeds up and slows down in the way it's written, but also in terms of what he's talking about. The contrast indeed, between the express train and Adelstock, to think about that process, and then it's stopping at the railway station, um, um, being kind of part of that. Part of this Edwardian worry about speed. Masterman, in uh, The Condition of England, talks about um, speed being a kind of contemporary concern and a contemporary problem. He connects it into not just the motor car, but also into things like uh, the arms race that's going on in the Edwardian period. The speeding up of the acquisition of possessions is a worry about um, uh, uh, kind of greed and the people's desire to spend more and more money and acquire more and more things against which that back to the land movement is something of a reaction actually, a kind of rejection of possessions and going back to the slow life, the simple life of back to the land of the countryside um, and Edward Thomas it's worth pointing out also does mention motor cars in his poetry um, you might not um, think of him necessarily engaging with contemporary technology as a countryside writer but his first poem Up in the Wind which is the first one on your your handout. His first poem, within a few lines, has actually picked up brilliantly all these Edwardian condition of England kind of concerns, really. Um, so it begins, I could wring the old thing's neck that put it here, a public house, maybe public for birds, squirrels and such like, ghosts of charcoal burners and highwaymen. The wild girl laughed, but I hate it since I came back from Kensington. I gave up a good place. A Cockney accent made her and the house seem wilder by calling up, only to be subdued by once, at once by wildness. 
the idea of London there in that forest parlour, low and small among the towering beaches, and the one bulging butt that's like a font. Um, picking up all of these Edwardian concerns here about the suburbs, about the growth of London, about the conflict between town and country, about England losing its rustic identity, against which you get that back-to-down movement uh, being produced, um, worrying about home, about being moved around the country, people losing their kind of sense of uh, a connection to the civic <coughs> corner of the town, uh, worry indeed about money and about work, uh, here and then a few lines later, he also talks of, indeed about motorist um, around line 21, uh, a motorist from a distance slowing down to taste whatever luxury he can and having North Downs clear behind, uh, South clear before. Uh, you can think of that motorist as being towed in wind in the willows if you want, um, but it, it's the same kind of spirit. So I've touched on Adelstrop, I um, think many of you will have come across this poem before. But just to remind you, this is a poem, most, his most famous poem of all, which does actually engage with um, uh, a railway train um, and, and about the relationship between ma- the machine and the countryside, the relationship between modernity um, and some kind of nostalgic sense of an old England um, here. Um, and indeed, it's important, I think, that it's an express train uh, rather than a slow train, in fact, uh, Anne Harvey, for instance, has done her investigations into which train exactly this would be, and that there's some puzzle about whether it would have been an express train or not. But it's important that it is to have that sense of speed and modernity about this. And there at the end of Adelstrop is that rhyme I mentioned of Mistia and Gloucestershire, which is one of the great rhymes uh, in English poetry, I think. Uh, one that shouldn't work, um, but somehow does. So we've got about five minutes left. I just wanted to address, too, another kind of Edwardian spirit of the age of uh, polar exploration, if you like, uh, which connects into many of these things I've been um, already talking about. Um, Thomas actually uh, rather fancied being an explorer himself. Um, He uh, rather fancied um, uh, escaping a lot more than he did. He escapes from home, as I said, quite a lot, but normally within England. Um, but it, it evidence of him trying to get voyages in, at, at sea and go abroad further. He had a great admiration for his friend um, Joseph Conrad, for instance, who did get to go on these adventures. But we also get in Thomas's letters um, um, uh, him uh, 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 saying, poor Captain Scott and Mrs. Scott, for instance, when the news of the fate of uh, Scott of the Antarctic was discovered. Um, uh, which takes us indeed back to Thomas's childhood, where he talks... Um, uh, um, about enjoying books about polar exploration, wanting to be an explorer without necessarily having to go to these places and kind of being an explorer in the mind, if you like. And that polar exploration is such a wonderful context for thinking about Thomas's work, but also the First World War generally. It's themes of uh, masculinity and of empire and of conquest and also of futility and pointlessness um, in many ways to some people. Also, for all its language of hardship, and suffering, which would then be kind of reused uh, in writing about the First World War. Um, maybe you want to kind of go off and look at that yourself, kind of in a lot more detail. But if you read through his prose, you'll see again and again too that Thomas actually writes about um, the English countryside as if it was a foreign place. And there's always a desire in him, I think, to go further, so that he's constantly trying to see England as something alien. Um, and even in his First World War writing, there's a strong sense that this countryside is undiscovered. Indeed, he quite commonly addresses it in those terms, as if he is actually 
trying to be this Edwardian explorer, this Edwardian discoverer of unconquered lands, which fits into his own desire to do something more heroic with his life, uh, but also, I think, takes on some more metaphorical significance about his own pursuit of meaning in his life and his own constant restlessness and his own depression and unhappiness, I think, uh, with his own self. Indeed, maybe it might not be stretching it too much, but there might even be images of... um, uh, polar exploration and uh, Captain Scott either in his hut or in his tent at the start of this poem Rain which is also one of the ones on your handout uh, Rain, midnight rain, nothing but the wild rain on this bleak hut and solitude and me remembering again that I shall die and neither hear the rain nor give it thanks for washing me cleaner than I have been since I was born into this solitude is how Rain wonderfully begins it's a war poem, it's about Thomas training in the army um, but somehow picks up um, the kind of language and the imagery, I think, of how we think about uh, Scott of the Antarctic or indeed uh, many other suffering explorers. And indeed, you might want to indeed think about the poem Lights Out by Thomas, another one of his war poems, uh, which portrays him as a kind of explorer, a kind of an Edwardian explorer, but in this case, he's exploring the land of sleep, or in some people would have it. Here he's metaphorically exploring uh, death um, as well. I've come to the borders of sleep, the unfathomable deep forest where all must lose their way. So this leads me on to something, just because we come towards the end, the last couple of minutes. just wanted to address something which is often discussed with Thomas, which is this kind of possibility of a kind of suicidal impulse in him. Um, it's often talked about... Um, uh, in terms of his own depression and so forth, but it's also uh, appropriately something that reflects this Edwardian age. The Edwardian age is often described as having this kind of death wish, particularly with hindsight, since we see the First World War as the kind of act of suicide, the suicide of nations, if you like. But also it's there in Peter Pan, of course, with death being the awfully big adventure, um, which almost is portrayed as something attractive. Um, and uh, it almost seems that uh, Edwardian literature and in Gordian life, I think, kind of is almost in love with its own self-destruction, its own pursuit um, of pleasure at the cost of all other things. But Captain Scott becomes an image of this too, um, the kind of foolhardy pursuit um, of a goal to the extent that you actually put your, lives, uh, your life and the lives of others at risk. Lights out might be taken as a suicidal impulse in Edward Thomas, who knows. Here we get lines uh, from Rain about his love with death. Lines that seem has not dissolved except the love of death. I've loved it for what is perfect and cannot, the tempest tells me, disappoint. I just wanted to put that on the slide to remind you that there is a romantic side to Edward Thomas because that, those lines in Rain actually take us back to Ode to a Nightingale by Keats. I have been half in love with easeful death. Um, I don't know if I'm going to want to talk at length about uh, the owl because we wanted to... I've actually haven't got that long left. I've got about two minutes and that's about the one it take. I've also just put the owl up here to remind you um, of Edward Thomas in terms of romanticism. Um, it's a war poem. It's talking about Edward Thomas thinking about soldiers. At the last line of the poem, we get a reference to soldiers and poor, unable to rejoice. But it's also a poem about a bird, a kind of engagement with a kind of romantic theme, if you like, but a very unromantic bird here because it's an owl uh, with, as he says there, no merry notes. Uh, there's nothing um, uh, uplifting about this bird song. It's actually a very depressing sound and one that reminds him of soldiers on the Western Front and indeed of the poor. 
I think it's a rather Edwardian poem too, by connecting soldiers and the poor together in that last line. Soldiers and poor unable to rejoice. Uh, there's something of a kind of liberal middle class conscience here. If you think of Howard's End, if anyone if you've read it, there's a kind of Schlegel sisters kind of sense of middle class guilt um, about the conditions of the poor and so on being expressed here. This is Thomas in a position of comfort in an inn at night um, in England, uh, feeling that he is having the kind of comfort that's been denied to others. And there is um, uh, a kind of distinctly Edwardian voice here when actually addressing the First World War. Which then leads us into the poem, The Private, you might want to look at. Because again, it's got a very similar sense of seeing the soldier as being on the same continuum with the, the kind of the poor, the, the Fabians and those back to the land uh, as of the Edwardian period are actually worried about. And that he's also quite aware that those soldiers who were suffering on the Western Front were also those guys who were suffering in peacetime, um, whether it be in the countryside or in the slums of Britain's cities. And that there is a condition of England quality to this work. He's worried about the nation of England and the, uh, there's a kind of democratic desire to see the conditions of the poor improved. I just wanted to mention A. Hausman as a context for this. I'm not going to go into this at length too, but many people point out that Hausman is the great influence on um, the war poets. Rupert Brooke, great fan of um, Hausman. Wilfred Owen, great fan of uh, Hausman. Uh, Sassoon, a great fan uh, of Hausman. Edward Thomas, who was a great fan of Hausman. And a lot of these Edwardian themes that I've been talking about can actually be found a few years before Edward VII comes to the throne, perhaps, in a Shropshire lad. Again, it has that suicidal impulse as one of the themes, but also that condition of England, kind of fear, town versus country, journeying and escape, lack of home, and the celebration of home, um, uh, and uh, uh, worry about modernity in relationship to a kind of rustic nostalgia. I just want to take to the last slide because I know I've got to stop now. Um, but uh, just as a conclusion then, is Edward Thomas a war poet at all? Um, can you indeed be a war poet if you're spending all your time writing about the countryside perhaps? But on the left-hand side, I've suggested that there is quite a, a long list of poems that you could call war poems by Edward Thomas, which kind of pretty much explicitly relate to the war in some way or other. In addition to that, you can then have all those poems that I talked about which aren't about the war as such, but are about the countryside in a way that might be metaphorically addressing the war. Um, and indeed, if you look in war poetry anthologies, some anthologies will put in Edward Thomas poems that don't seem to have anything to do with the war at all. They'll be about birds and ploughing and things like that, um, but can be interpreted as an engagement with the theme. And also, as I said, you can then also add the poems about his family, because they wouldn't have been written if he hadn't been going off to fight, and so forth. Um, and just to end then, I guess... Um, uh, to kind of ask the question whether Edward Thomas has become uh, our war poet now and that because of his rising kind of popularity his stock has risen to the extent now has he offered us an alternative vision of war poetry um, which we might contrast with that as say Wilfred Owen or Seafood Sassoon and that we prefer maybe now a gentler idea of personal poetry which addresses the war obliquely or indirectly or uh, metaphorically or addresses it through the home front and through the family, um, and there's obviously a lot of interest now in the First of War from the perspective of home rather than uh, actual battles and so forth. You will get very little description of battle with Edward Thomas, but a heck of a lot of engagement with war in a broader sense. Um, so I'll leave that as a question for you to think about, and which you prefer. You've got two options here, kind of Wilfred Owen or Edward Thomas, and I kind of like both. Um, but uh, I'll leave it for you. Right, I will shut up. Okay.